Well, it is good to be back into the States after being in Russia where the weather was just wonderful, cold and snowing. Mm, mm, mm. Ah, it was good. It was very good. And what's really good is to be able to preach without a translator. I'm telling you, I really feel throttled back when yeah, I can only say a sentence at a time all week. It makes me want to speak really fast when I get back. Just to give you a little review, uh, I left uh, Saturday and uh, traveling to Russia is it's painful. I don't even know how to figure out how long it takes to get there. Uh, you fl- I think you fly around 25 hours or 20 or travel with layovers. I travel about 25 or 3 hours or something. Um, but I left Saturday morning and got there Monday morning and uh, experienced two sunrises. And uh, anyways, a little spacey after being awake that long. And then they kept me up all day and... I went to bed and on uh, Tuesday and Wednesday taught from 8.30 in the morning to, to uh, 6 o'clock at night and uh, teaching a class on preaching the Gospels and Acts, teaching pastors from all around. There was even one pastor from 4,000 kilometers away, which is a long ways away. And uh, he and a few of the pastors in his area all want to come to the institute, but they, they just can't afford to do it. And so um, they all chipped in to help him go to the institute so that he could then learn and come back and teach them. And so it was a great time, and I just taught about, you know, different things about different kinds of passages and acts and the Gospels and how to preach them. Then I would preach at them, so every day I'd preach three or four sermons in the course of teaching the classes, and uh, did that uh, all day on Tuesday and Wednesday. On Thursday, I, they, get, they only let me teach, they let me teach an hour less. I got to stop at five, because then they had me teach on the history of Puritan preaching that evening for a couple hours. Uh, on Friday, I taught from uh, morning until 3 o'clock and then flew to Moscow, where we arrived late. The next morning, got up and uh, uh, a bunch of pastors from the Moscow region. Uh, Moscow is a big city, 20 million people. And uh, so the the pastors in that area all came and assembled in a church that has been built since the fall of communism. Several churches in America got together to help them build a pretty nice facility there and... Uh, so we uh, taught, uh, me and John Snyder, who is a missionary there, he, he did some of the outlining, some of the more technical issues, just because I can't speak Russian and just would go faster. But I basically gave them my how to prepare and deliver sermons uh, class here in one day, kind of a learn how to be an awesome expositor in one day seminar. And uh, so we did that. Um, then uh, the next morning I got up and preached a Christmas message that I preached here last year from Revelation chapter 12, had lunch, went into downtown Moscow, got to see the Red Square and the Kremlin, had about three hours of free time, and then came back and got up the next morning early and flew back. So the rest of the time I've just been trying to learn how to sleep at night again. <laughs> it's kind of strange leaving Moscow at seven in the morning traveling for 20-something hours, and then getting here four hours later. <laughs> the same day. And uh, my, my internal clock doesn't know how to deal with that. 
But uh, I got some really good work done this week when I showed up to the office at 3.30 or 4 in the morning. Uh, didn't do very good in the afternoon, though, uh, when I went home and took a short nap and just kind of wandered around spacey, waiting for bedtime. But uh, last night, I actually slept pretty good, so I'm doing good today. All right, we're in Luke chapter 8, and verses 1 through 3 for this morning. I was going to try and teach verses 1 through 15 because all of this information relates to the parable of the sower, which is just one of those great parables that uh, is so fun to teach because Jesus interprets it, so you know you have the interpretation right. And it's just one of those great texts. But after I started going through the passage, my... My sermon got so huge, I cut it in two, and then it started getting so huge, I cut it in two again. And so uh, what we're going to do is just look at some of the introduction things this morning. And there are two primary doctrines that are just alluded to in the text. But I thought, you know, these are so important that, you know, why rush? We can always come back and do the parable and its interpretation. So this morning, we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 3 and uh, look at a couple of the things alluded to there. And then when we come back in three weeks, we'll get back to the parable. So you'll just have to hang on. But if you have your Bible, look at Luke 8, chapter 1, and follow along as I read these first three verses. The text says... He began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. Now, from these first three verses, I want to point out two doctrines in the text that are alluded to that every Christian needs to know and understand and apply to their lives. They're very practical. I think you will find them very helpful. The first is uh, the doctrine of discipleship and the other, the area of women in ministry. So let's look at the first, which would be follow Jesus's model of discipleship. In this first few verses, Luke is giving us the introductory information we need to know before Jesus gives the parable. And he starts off in verse 1 by saying, soon afterwards. Now, just stop there. Soon after what? Well, it is soon after um, Jesus went to the house of Simon the Pharisee and The woman who was an immoral woman came in with the vial of perfume and cried on his feet and washed, wiped it with his feet with her hair and poured the pure perfume. And then he told the parable of the two debtors to teach Simon the Pharisee um, that he needed to love him like this immoral woman who was basically a rebuke to Simon the Pharisee. So it was soon after that. And then look at verse one again. Um, Soon after that, he began going around from one city and village to another proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. And this is just, you know, Jesus's standard method of doing ministry. He was a preacher. He was an itinerant preacher. I think if you were to go to most Christians and say, why did Jesus come to earth? They would say, well, he came to earth to die on the cross for our sins. And that is true. But that is not the only reason he came. He came to preach. He was a preacher. Because preaching is God's method of spreading, his primary method of spreading the gospel and spreading the truth of his word. And that is why Jesus came. He came to preach and to teach a group of men who would go out and teach others, who would teach others. And lo and behold, here we are today. 
All of us here are the fruit of Jesus's discipling ministry. Pretty amazing to think how it traveled through all of those centuries, but it has and will continue until he comes again. Discipleship uh, or discipling is a word that we use here quite a bit. A lot of people aren't quite sure what it means, but we know that, you know, it's a good thing. It's some sort of learning process. And a disciple is just somebody who learns or sits at the feet uh, of another person to be instructed by them. And so when you talk about being a disciple, it means being a learner or being dis, uh, discipling somebody else. It means teaching somebody else. And so as Jesus, the text says here um, in verse one, as it goes on, it says that Jesus had the 12 with him. Well, that is interesting that he had the 12 with him as he traveled around. Why? Because he was discipling them. Discipleship is kind of like um, on the job training. Discipleship is, yes, instructing, but also showing, modeling, helping somebody else to grow or learn in a certain area. And what I'd like to do this morning is I would like to just go through 12 bullet points that outline Jesus's discipling ministry. And these are very helpful. They're very practical. I I taught on this a couple years back in the men's ministry. So if you want kind of a full-blown session on this, you could probably get the CD from the office. I think it was called Discipleship Jesus Style. But this morning, I just want to point these out. You can write down these 12 basic points. And as you disciple or are being disciple, you can ask yourself if these things are present or not. You should incorporate them. The first is this. Jesus handpicked his disciples. This is where it begins. You go out and you find somebody that needs to learn something. And that is what Jesus did. Luke 6.13 says, And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, who he also named apostles. This is the first step. Go find somebody to disciple. Or if you're very young in the faith, you find somebody to disciple you. And if you're finding somebody to disciple, you look for somebody who's fat. Which is an acronym for faithful available and teachable you're looking for fat people and then if you keep that in mind you will find the right kind of people to disciple and of course that is what jesus disciples were weren't they they were men who left everything to follow him they showed up they were faithful you know people say 90 percent of ministry is just showing up just being there but some people you can't even get to come and so You must find people who are faithful, who are available, and who want to grow. Secondly, Jesus chose his disciples for a specific purpose. Discipleship can't just be some willy-nilly, well, let's just hang out, you know, and just fellowship. That's not discipleship. Discipleship has a purpose. You know, you want to learn how to study the Bible. You want to learn how to pray. Pray. You want to learn, be consistent in your quiet times or have a quiet time or, you know, do some ministry in the church or whatever. And then somebody sits you down and over a course of time, it could be one day. It could be a month. It could be a year. That person prepares and teaches you how to do that ministry. That is what discipleship is in part. Mark 3.14 says, and he appointed the 12 so that he, that they, they would be with him. And so he could send them out to preach because that is what Jesus did. 
He didn't just come to die. He came to preach. And when you look in the scriptures, you find some interesting things. For instance, remember when Jesus was uh, in his hometown of Nazareth? And remember when he was reading from the scroll of Isaiah? And he read that passage about the Messiah being a preacher, a proclaimer of the good news. And he said, guess what? Today, that passage is being fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, here I am, the preacher. Later on in Luke chapter 4, verses 43 and 44, Jesus said, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Jesus came as a preacher, but not only did he come as a preacher, he came to disciple and make other preachers so that they would go out and teach what he was teaching other people. Jesus knew he was going to die. He only had three years. And so he had to build a little small army of preaching machines who would go out and then teach everything he taught them. And so that was his purpose. Maybe you have somebody that you want to get together with. Well, if you want to get together with somebody, have a purpose. Maybe you meet the first time and say, you know what? Is there an area in your life you'd like to grow in? You know, how are you doing with the basic godly disciplines? And say, well, yeah, you know, I'm not doing very good here. Say, okay, that's going to be our purpose. Let's set three months. We'll, we'll look at the scriptures. We'll, I'll try and help you. We'll do what we can, see if we can train you in that area to see. And then you could pick something else or the relationship ends or whatever. So Jesus chose people and he chose his disciples to train them in a specific purpose. Third, Jesus spent time verbally instructing his disciples. And this is obvious as you go through the gospels. For instance, in Matthew 11, 1, it says when Jesus had finished giving instructions to the 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. You have to speak to people. And this implies something, doesn't it? If you're going to teach somebody something, you better know it yourself. And so if I'm going to teach you how to pray, then I better study up on prayer so I have something to tell you from God's word. The discipler is somebody who is helping somebody else, the disciplee, learn what God says in his word and how to apply it to their life. And so that implies, if you're going to disciple somebody, it implies that you have to prepare and make sure you're ready to impart to that person what they need to know in order to grow in that area. Fourth, Jesus modeled the truth that he taught. In Matthew 20, verses 26 through 28, Jesus teaches the disciples about not grasping for power. If you remember, there were several of those situations where the disciples were less than sterling in character. You know, let me be first and I want to be the number one. And, you know, let me sit at your right hand and left. And so Jesus tells them not to be like the grasping, groping Gentiles who are always trying to be power, power hungry. And he says this. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. So he tells them, instructs them, this is the right way to think and the right way to be. And then do you know what he says? Who does he hold up as an example? Himself. He goes on to say, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus holds his own life up as the model of a servant. And this is what you need to do. When you're teaching somebody how to do something, you better be doing that. You remember what Paul said to the self-righteous Jews in Romans 2.21? He said, you who teach others, do you teach yourself? 
You have to make sure you've taught yourself so that you don't come across hypocritically. Fifth, Jesus prayed for his disciples. In Luke 22, 31 and 32, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus prayed for his disciples. In John 17, the whole, the whole chapter of John 17 is Jesus praying for his disciples and all believers, even us. He prays that God would strengthen, we would have unity, we would be one, and you have to pray. When, you, when you're discipling somebody, you pray for that person. You pray for their growth, their discernment, um, their, their increased ability to glorify God. Just pray for their needs. That's what Jesus did. That's what we need to do. Six, Jesus sent his disciples out to minister to others. There's a purpose of training somebody in the scriptures, and that's to do it. To do it. You know, you shouldn't be getting together just to learn and talk about deep things in theology so you can just be fat-headed about it. You know, so you can say, right, now I know, I've memorized Calvin's institutes. So what? Are you doing his institutes? The whole point of learning and growing in ministry is doing ministry. And what's great about Jesus, he just didn't say, now, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. He gave them opportunities. For instance, in Mark chapter 6, verse 7, we said, he summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs. And he gave them authority, told them to go preach the gospel. And that's what they did. They went out and they preached. They healed the sick. He gave them what they needed and then had them go out and do it. Why? Because you have to do that. You have to do that. Uh, if you don't, then knowledge never becomes skill. I remember in seventh grade going to art class and, you know, it was, uh, you know, pottery time. And, you know, you're thinking, you know, what could be so big, you know, mud, you know, clean mud. And the teachers, you know, tell us how to slap this chunk of mud down and, you know, this clay and get the bubbles out of it. And then, you know, kind of roll it into a ball. And then she says, throw it down in the middle of the wheel. And she's talking to us and she's looking at us and she gets her hands wet and she starts forming this thing into this nice cylinder and starts laying it on this really great looking pot. And, you know, when you're in seventh grade, you know everything. (laughs) And so you're sitting there going, that's easy. Anybody can make one of those. And so you can't wait to get behind that thing and step on the throttle and, you know, make your own pot. And then reality sets in. The first thing is you can't even get it centered in the wheel. Every time you start pushing on it, it starts coming loose. And so you keep throwing it down and throwing it down. Then the teacher comes over and helps you get it centered. Then you go, well, now I got to take it. It looks so easy. And pretty soon it's all mangled into a big chunk. And <laughs> you just realize, you know, today is not the day for making pots. Uh, but it's still easy. Sure. There's a whole lot of difference between instruction and doing. And one of the neat things about Jesus's ministry is he trained them. Yes, but then he sent them out to do it. Seventh, Jesus gave his disciples feedback after he sent them out to do ministry. And this is very critical. For instance, in Matthew 17, 14 through 21, we read how the disciples who were given power, given authority to cast out demons and heal the sick and preach the gospel. They went out, they did it, but there was one demon they couldn't cast out. And 
Verses 19 through 21 of Matthew 17, we read this. The disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, the disciples went out and they thought, you know, you know, we're big here. You know, we've got power. We've been trained. I mean, Jesus trained us. We're going to go out and do this thing. And then they couldn't do it. And they came back ready to learn. And that's why you need to send people out. You know, I wish that uh, when I'm teaching students at the seminary how to preach, that they could just go out in the ministry and just totally bomb out for a whole year. And then come back. Then they'd all be ready to learn. Because now they know how much they don't know. Because they've had an opportunity to do something. But see, when you've never done it and it's all theory, you think, well, you know, this is easy. I mean, making a pot, a lump of clay on a spinning wheel. I mean, what's the big deal? Well, do it then. Now, all of a sudden it becomes a big deal. You become very much more uh, attentive. You know, there's a lot of times I'm working on my house. I'm, I'm doing things and I don't know what I'm doing. So I ask people, you know, I call them up. How do you do this? You know, I don't know. And then I try it. And a lot of times it's crummy. So I rip it out and do it again. But eventually I get good at it. And you know, that's what you have to do in ministry. You train people, you give them instruction and say, go out. And then when they go out, they bomb. And then when they come back, you know, you tell them, you know, this things you did good. These things were not so good. You know, some people ask me, you know, how come you're here on Sunday morning and you aren't preaching? This is the very reason. Sometimes I come here and I don't have anywhere else to go. I don't know else I'm teaching because I, every six weeks I try and put somebody up here so they can preach. Because they need to learn how to make pots. And the only way you can learn how to preach is to preach. And so when they're just starting, I get together with them before. Then I let them preach and I get together with them after. And then after a while, I just talk to them after. And then pretty soon I don't even talk to them anymore. Now we have a whole group of pastors who are all great preachers. And that's how it works. That's how you do it. Jesus ate Jesus selected certain disciples to have greater privileges than others. And this is always interesting. I mean, if you've studied the Bible, you know that partiality is a sin. It's a sin. But, for instance, in Matthew 17, 1, it says, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, led him up to the mountain. They got to see the Mount of Transfiguration. Only them. Some of the disciples only got to see people raised from the dead or only got to hear certain teaching. And you're thinking to yourself, well, that doesn't seem right. I mean, that doesn't seem fair. It's like, hey, you're going with me and, you know, we're going to this really cool thing. But you other disciples, you stay back. Now, why, why, wasn't, why isn't that sin? Well, never confuse partiality with privilege. God does not show partiality. But what he does do is give people certain privileges. Some people are just good. At certain things. They're good. They're gifted more than others in different areas. And we all know that. And even within ministry, some people just have certain, you know, sometimes you can only let, you know, one person preach. And so you pick one person. And it's not because the other ones are sinners or they're not qualified or they're not gifted. It's just the way it is. It's the way it is. And when you're talking about areas of grace and mercy, areas that are neither deserved nor earned, you have a right to do what you want with that which is your own. 
And so sometimes Christ would take certain men. And sometimes when you disciple people, you're going to do that. You're going to, you may give certain people responsibilities because of their giftedness or their maturity or their, their skill level or whatever, or just because you want to bless them. And that's okay. But when it comes to biblical mandates, for instance, God cannot lie to some and tell the truth to others. He cannot break his promise to some and then keep it for others. He cannot go against his nature. God is bound by what he has spoken. And in those areas, he cannot show partiality. And so when there is biblical mandate involved and God is telling us we have to behave a certain way towards all people, we just have to do it. But when it comes to areas of grace, areas that are freedoms, areas where you don't, you aren't mandated by God to give a certain amount or serve in a certain way or, you know, have somebody over or, or take them to some neat ministry event or whatever, then you have a right to do it what you want with that which is your own and you might pick certain disciples to enjoy certain privileges jesus did it and at times you will be forced to do the same thing if you disciple others nine jesus encouraged his disciples in the upper room in john 14 25 and 20 through 27 and again if you read the whole chapter jesus the whole chapter is an encouragement but he said this these things i've spoken to you while abiding with you but the helper the holy spirit whom the father will send in my name will teach you all things then bring to your remembrance all that i said to you peace i leave with you My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Jesus encouraged his disciples. And you know, when you are discipling somebody, they're going to fail. And they're going to blow it. And you know, sometimes when the guys are just learning how to preach or teach, and you know, you give them an opportunity, and you know, it's pretty painful. And you know, what I do is I pick out as many good things as I can and just kind of tell them one thing. You know, you might want to work on this, but you were good here, man. You were awesome here. You nailed it over here. And I think, all right, man, you know, I'm not just a total loser. And the next time they try harder and they do better and yeah, you encourage those you're discipling. When you see progress and you see faithfulness, even if they just show up consistently, that's more than most people do. So encourage people. That you disciple. 10. Jesus reproved and rebuked his disciples when they needed it. In Mark 8, 32 through 33, Jesus was telling his disciples he was going to die. And Mark writes this. And as he was stating the matter plainly, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Howie. Rebuking is the worst part of discipling. You know, you have this disciple who's involved in some sort of sin or justifying some sort of sinful activity and you know what's wrong and you know they know what's wrong and they're still doing it. And, you know, you just got to pull them aside and say, hey, (laughs) you're blowing it here, pal. And you have to speak to them. You don't have to be mean. You don't have to be nasty. But you remember what the proverb says, Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy and better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. And that's what we need to do. You know, I have had people who I know love me. They come to me and just, man, I need it. I need it. Uh, the missionary I was staying with, 
uh, John Snyder, he was telling me how when he got there, you know, he's trying to learn Russian and he's learned Russian very well in the last five years. He's still growing. He tells all his students at the beginning of the semester, listen, I know which one of you are going to love me because in the middle of my classes, when I'm speaking to you, you're going to stop me and tell me you just said that wrong. And he says, all during the class period, people keep interrupting me, John. And I keep telling them, these guys love me. And you know what? They do. Because he, he wants to learn Russian. He doesn't want to be an irritation when he teaches. And yeah, you know, is it fun to have people say, hey, you're blowing it? No, but it's good. It's good. And so we need to rebuke each other like Jesus did his disciples when they needed it. 11, Jesus warned his disciples. You know, Satan has so many things that he uses to trip us up. When you're discipling somebody, you know, whether it's about, you know, how to love their spouse or how to do their finances or how to read their Bible or how to pray. If you've been a Christian a while, you know, you should probably know most of the trappings that come with that. The things that distract you, the things that, you know, lead you astray, the danger areas. And, you know, you just need to tell people, hey, you know... This, this, now when you do this, be aware of this. Watch out for this. Be careful you don't fall into these things. And just warn. That's what Jesus did. For instance, in Matthew seven fifteen, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You know, there's all these people who come along and they look very wholesome and very pastoral, very pious and religious, and they're wolves. And their teeth are false doctrine. And Jesus says, beware, they're out there and there's lots of them. Twelve, Jesus didn't chase after those who didn't want to follow him. This is, I find this one, I, I want to write a book on this. I find it so interesting. You know, a lot of, usually when we think of Jesus, we think of Jesus as, you know, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He leaves the 99 to go find the one. And it's true, he was all those things. But what did Jesus do when goats wanted to leave his sheepfold? He just let them go. Listen to this story. And just imagine yourself, you're listening to Jesus, you've been intrigued by his teaching, you've seen his miracles, you're starting to think, I I think this is the Messiah, I think this is the Messiah. You've been following him around. And you're seeing him do these incredible things. And then Jesus says, and I want you to know, I want all of you to eat my flesh and drink my blood. I mean, what's that? It's like, wow, are you sure? That's not, that's not right. I mean, I don't know about all this new teaching that you're giving us, but this whole cannibal thing is not good. And you're wondering, are you going to explain this? Well, this is what Jesus said. Listen to this. John 6 Verses 60 through 67. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious of the, that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? Then he throws another huge thing at them. What if you see the son of man ascending where he was before? Is that going to cause you to stumble? 
And then he says this, it's a spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. And all he's saying to him is, listen, what I'm talking to you is about spiritual things here. I'm not talking about cannibalism. But they didn't get it. And that's all Jesus, he gave them one sentence of explanation. Then he said harder things still. He said, but there are some of you who do not believe. Now, how would you like that? You follow Jesus all around the country, learning from him. And he's saying, yeah, some of you don't even believe. And then it says, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the father. He says, I also want to tell you this. None of you can follow me unless the Father says so. You aren't even in control. Now, how would you like that one? Oh, yeah? Well, watch this. I'm out of here. And that's what they did. As a result, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go also, do you? Now, what is amazing is that Jesus said some very hard things. First, he said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he didn't really explain himself. Secondly, he spoke of ascending into heaven. What if you saw me ascending into heaven, which would probably make him, you know, pretty special. Ascending into heaven. Third, he said to his disciples, some of you don't even believe. He insulted them. He quite, he put their integrity into question. And fourth, he told them, listen, the only reason that any of you can follow me is if God makes it so. And you aren't even in control. And he didn't explain himself. He didn't explain himself. And then the whole mass of them all departed except for the 12. Think about that. And he didn't run after them and say, wait, wait, let me explain myself. Now, what I meant by this was this. And what I meant by this is this. And all I was saying is this. And, you know, don't, 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 don't leave. He just let them go. He let them go. And you know what? Sometimes they're in your discipleship relationship. You're going to be dealing with people who don't even show up. They know when you're meeting, they said they'd be there and they don't show up. So you call them. Oh, yeah, sorry, I wasn't there. Okay, well, next week at this time. Okay, I'll be there. Then they don't show up. It's like pulling teeth. Or if they do show up, they don't do what you ask them. Listen. Remember, fat people, faithful, available, and teachable. If they don't meet the criteria, just say, listen. You can go to the main service. You can go to Sunday night. You can go to Sunday school. You can go to men's ministries or women's ministries or Bible studies that are open to the church. But listen, you want one-on-one discipleship or small group discipleship. You've got to be faithful. You've got to be available and you've got to be teachable. Because listen, Satan would love nothing more than for you to take your precious time and resources and dump it into a black hole to a person who is never going to apply what you teach him. And so Jesus, when people didn't want to hear him, didn't want to grow, didn't want to stick around to understand, he just let them go. He just let them go. You remember the text in 2 Timothy 2.2? Paul is talking to Timothy. It's the last epistle he ever wrote. And he said, Timothy, 
Let me tell you the kind of people you need to invest in. The things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, you take these things and you deposit them into the lives of other men so that they may be able to teach others also. Four generations are mentioned there. I taught you, you teach others who can teach others. And that's why this church exists today. Because of those kind of people. And that's what we are to do in making disciples. So that is a very quick survey of Jesus' method of discipleship. Now the question is, are you involved in that at all? Now there's maybe seasons in your life where, you know, you aren't in some one-on-one thing or small group thing. Maybe you're going to a Sunday school class or a midweek class and, you know, you've got homework and you're growing and everything's great. But, you know, when you look at your life, there should be times in your life where you have sought others out or, or, or they, they have sought you out and you're in these close relationships where you're learning important things about doing ministry and growing uh, in your relationship with Christ. Every healthy church has lots of little discipleship relationships going on all the time. And sometimes they're just one session meetings you know some of you seniors are there and you know you're thinking well you know i'm i'm old and you know god could never use me oh quit lying to yourself yes he can you know so much more than most of us even hope to know i mean you grew up in the depression you know before tvs and all the computers and you know rode horses to school and you have all this experience you have all this life experience man you've lived it you've been there yeah you've bombed out in finances you've bombed out in business you've raised children you've raised grandchildren you've done all these things man you know it you've heard a zillion sermons and you know what the young people in this church they aren't going to call you up and say hey have me over to dinner and fix me Well, you need to say, hey, you know, you you couple young couples, why don't you come on over to the house for dinner? And then when they come over, say, hey, so tell me, tell me how you came to the Lord. Tell me about your walk with the Lord. You know, tell me how you doing with your finances. How you doing with your parenting? How are you doing with whatever? You know, age does, does not allow people to be equal. People who are older have more life experience. They have a lot of wisdom. And the younger people need that wisdom. But you need to make an effort. And everybody needs to make If you're older in the Lord, you're more mature in the Lord. I mean, you may not know as much as some, but I'm telling you, you know more than the person who doesn't know anything. And so I'll say, hey, how would you like to get together for a couple months? And just talk about, you know, reading your Bible, quiet times, praying. Most young believers would just jump at that. And I would love to do that. You do that for me? Yeah. And do it. Two, three months goes by, say, hey, you got a good pattern started here. Keep going. Find somebody, you teach them. And that's how the church grows. And that's how the church stays healthy. Healthy churches have lots of discipleship relationships. But what's interesting here is our text not only mentions the disciples were with Jesus, it also mentions women. And this brings us to our next point. 
We need to learn from the godly women who supported Jesus' ministry. Look at Luke 8, verses 2 through 3. The text says, and also, not only were the disciples with him, also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing their support out of their private means. Now, I don't know about you, but usually when I think of Jesus and his ministry, you know, going around preaching, what I think of is Jesus with 12 guys, you know, kind of male bonding time, you know, cruising through the fields of Jerusalem, picking some grange, you know, 12 guys, you know, all with dirty clothes on or need shaved. But you know, what's interesting here is Luke just alludes to it in passing that there is a whole horde of women along with them as they traveled around. Here Luke points out three women in specific. The first woman he points out is Mary Magdalene. And Luke, being the doctor, wants to know, I want you to know seven demons were cast out of this woman. Um, Mary Magdalene, according to Mark 1540 and John 1925, watched Jesus' crucifixion and death. She helped prepare Jesus' body, according to Matthew 2761, and also saw Christ immediately after his resurrection, according to Matthew 28.1. I mean, she was there. She not only traveled around with Jesus and ministered to him and was involved in his ministry, but she was there in the critical moments. And you know what? There's hardly anything said about her. The other woman mentioned in the text, if you look there, is Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward. I like this. I don't know how the wife of Herod's steward got, you know, in contact with the gospel that it happened. And now she's following Jesus around and ministering to Jesus and his disciples and the other people they minister to. And then we read about one more woman. Oh, by the way, Joanna was there, um, saw the resurrected Lord according to Luke 24.10. And finally, we were told about Susanna. We don't know anything else about her, but, you know, she's mentioned here. I mean, I'd like to have my name even a mention in the Bible. And this woman is mentioned as somebody who ministered to Jesus, traveled around with Jesus. But look at the middle of verse 3. This is just fascinating. And many others, and these are feminine case here, many other women who were contributing to their support out of their private means. So think about this. A lot of times you think of Jesus traveling around with 12 guys. No. Jesus is traveling around, yes. But he's also got a whole bunch of women traveling around with him enabling him to do his ministry, supporting the disciples. You know, I just want you to know, I could never do all the ministry I do if it wasn't for my wife. I couldn't do it. I want you I just go home and, you know, voila, there's dinner. You know, I wake up in the morning and reach into my drawer and there's underwear and socks. They just magically appear there. Shirts, ironed on the coat hanger. It's all by themselves it just happens you know i mean i my wife's always reminding me you got to go here you got to go there we're going here you're doing this you're preaching there my wife because of her efforts allows me to do what i'm able to do it's just like a missionary in the field sure you have a missionary in the field but there's a whole string of people between the missionary and the sending church that are all working to make sure that person can function 
Well, this whole group of women was going around helping Jesus and his disciples function. They were providing for their needs and ministering to them and cooking meals for them. And not only that, the disciples had their wives and their children. We're talking about a lot of women. And they're giving out of their private means to help make Jesus' ministry happen. And I, I like this. Think about this. Herod hires Chusa, his steward. Joanna takes money from her husband and gives it to Jesus. And so Jesus now is being supported indirectly by Herod himself. I like that. That is good. And that's what happened. These women were involved in Jesus' ministry. But this is what you need to remember. You read all the way through the Gospels and they're never mentioned. Except here. They're just never mentioned. The disciples are always going around. And a lot of times most of the disciples aren't even mentioned. You know, James, Peter, John, and sometimes Andrew, you know, and the rest are kind of just rarely mentioned. And we can begin to think that, yeah, there was 12 guys who followed Jesus around. No, there wasn't. There was a whole, you know, army, mostly of women. They followed Jesus around, and those women made it possible for Jesus to do all the things, and the disciples to do all the ministry that they were able to do, because they supported that. And we're going to find out about them when we get to heaven. Luke just mentions three here and just says there's many others. Now, when it comes to women in ministry, this this issue is so hotly debated. It is so hotly debated. You know, there's there's women who try and say, well, you know, because there's no Gentile or Jew, there's no male or female, but all are one in Christ when it comes to salvation. Therefore, there's no male and female distinctions and there's no role relationships. There's you just, you know, anybody can do anything they want. Women can do anything they want. Men can do anything they want. And the feminist movement has tried to make the church androgynous, neither male nor female. Well, when it comes to God saving people, it's true. He saves people from all classes and both sexes. When it comes to ministry, though, God has clearly defined women's roles. Now, sometimes the feminists like to say, well, what about Miriam? She led men and Deborah and Priscilla. How can you say that, you know, women shouldn't lead men? I mean, these women did. And well, first of all, you must never confuse what is described with what is prescribed. There are a lot of godly people in the Old Testament who are described as having committed adultery, lying, cheating, stealing, doing all sorts of wicked behavior, committing polygamy. Well, that doesn't mean we're supposed to do it because they did it. Never confuse what is described with what is prescribed. Secondly, you don't take the exception and make it the rule. For instance, they'd love to go to Deborah. Deborah, you know, Judges chapter 4 and 5, Deborah, yeah, she was a prophetess and, you know, she led the armies of Israel in battle against Sisera. Okay, well, let's talk about Deborah then. All right, what is the theme of the book of Judges? Last verse in the book of Judges, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The men of Israel were wicked. The men of Israel were not taking responsibility. And so God raised up a woman to lead them as a rebuke and a shame to them. And then God spoke through this woman to lead Barak in 
battle against Sisera that he might be defeated by a woman. I mean, that was a shame. That was a shame in that culture. They'd be defeated by a woman. But, you know, come on. One woman ruler in all of Israel's history, unless you want to can't, you know, call Athaliah some godly thing. God called her that wicked woman. Deborah's it. She is it. And she came during a time of great apostasy and God raised her up to rebuke Israel. Secondly, God raised her up to judge Sisera. I mean, you know, guys are pretty macho and you know, I'm the big warrior. And God says through Deborah this to Barak. Uh, uh, Barak was supposed to go against Sisera, but he was scared. And he said, well, Deborah, can, can you go with us? She says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. And if you remember the story, Deborah went with Barak. Barak's army routed Sisera's army and then Sisera fled and he came upon the tent of a woman named Jael and she said oh come into my tent we'll just get you some warm milk and a blankie won't you just rest here you look tired you look so tired we'll just lay down here and go night night And Judges 4.21 says, But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg, seized a hammer in her hand, and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple, and it went through into the ground, for he was sound asleep and exhausted, so he died. No kidding. (laughs) That is where I think the phrase splitting headache comes from. (laughs) Thus Sisera's army was defeated by Israel, led by a woman, and Sisera himself was slain by a woman, which was a huge dishonor. But listen, is this exception to be made a rule and a mandate for the church? Oh, come on. Somebody, what about Miriam? Well, what about her? Exodus fifteen twenty says she led the women in worship. Oh, well, what about Priscilla and Acts? 18, doesn't it say there? Yes, it does say there that Priscilla and Aquila took Apollos aside and explained to him more about Christianity privately. She was not a pastor. She was not an elder. She was not a leader. She was just a godly woman. And her and her husband ministered to this guy who had some questions about Christ. That's all it says. But the real authority is the word of God. What does God say Two statements made directly to the church about how women are to function in ministry? Well, first of all, in 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul describes men and women's roles, the men's headship over a woman, and how they are to maintain their role distinctions. And at the beginning of the chapter, he says this in verse 3, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, you can debate whether or not women need to wear head coverings or have their hair long or not shave their head or whatever. But I'm telling you, that verse is crystal clear. That verse is clear. Man is the head of woman. And in verse 16, it says, But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice 
nor have the churches of God. That kind of settles it. God has set up role distinctions in the home and the church. He wants men leading. It's not because men are smarter. They aren't. It's not because they're more able. A lot of times women are better equipped. So the question is, well, why? Because God says so. That's all. People, well, that doesn't seem very fair that, you know, women can't be pastors and they can't be leaders. Well, most of the men in here can't be pastors and elders. Okay? You have to meet the qualifications. It doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. You have to, you have to meet the qualifications. You have to go by the book. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is talking about speaking and the gift of tongues. And he's talking about tongues. Tongues are a revelatory gift where God was able to instruct people. In other words, you have some people. I wish I had the gift of tongues last week. Um, I'm speaking in front of a bunch of Russians. And I, I prayed to God multiple times. That couldn't you just like install the gift of tongues real quick here? Um, I could get so much more done. It's so fun actually being able to preach and not have to stop every sentence for an interpreter to say it in a different language. And so God gave people the gift of tongues. And so they could speak in a language they didn't know so they could communicate the truth. And in the context of speaking about women speaking in tongues, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35. Women are to keep silent in the churches. That is, they are not to speak in tongues. For they are not permitted to speak, that is, speak in tongues, but are to subject themselves, that is, to men, just as the law also says, And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for women to speak in church. Now, that's pretty clear to me. That is pretty clear. Later in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul, speaking of women in public worship, says, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. If you look at the the qualifications for elder, it's, to be a one woman man, never a one man woman. That's it. And in our society of feminism and equal rights, the world is trying to get us to cave in to biblical mandates and we can't do it. And then what really eeks me in all of this is when they, then they pendulum and say, Oh, so you don't believe women could do any ministry. What? No, I didn't say that. All I'm saying is they aren't to teach or exercise authority over men. That's it. Let's come on. Let's get it right here. Women can teach. We have women here who teach constantly. Women can serve. They can help. They can pray. They can encourage. They can do all the things that God says they can do, which is a lot of things. Not only can they do that. It's required that they do that. Every woman needs to be involved in ministry. You look in the Old Testament, look at all those women there who did things. The women in the Messianic line and the women in the New Testament times, you know, Elizabeth and Mary and, you know, Anna and, you know, Priscilla and all these women who God used in great ways. And, you know, we got three of them mentioned in the text, but it says there's a whole bunch of them. And just because they aren't mentioned doesn't mean they were insignificant. People go, well, yeah, but, you know, I can't do everything. Well, I, neither can I do everything. I, you know, well, that's, I'm sorry. You wouldn't want me singing. <laughs> well, some of you sound great when you sing, uh, but I would be an irritation to you. you know, and, and that's okay. 
Sometimes it's a matter of giftedness. Sometimes it's a matter of calling. You know, okay, so guys are supposed to lead. But you know, not everybody's an elder here. Only a few are. That's the way it is. Even Jesus submitted himself to rules. We all have to do that. That's not a bad thing. It's not belittling. It's just the way it is. But God wants women in ministry. Women have a huge place in ministry. And at the beginning, their primary ministry is their home. You know, one of the hardest things for a young lady, especially one who's growing in the Lord, she's really excited, she's you know, involved in college ministry and finds some sweet young thing and gets married. And then together, man, they're married and they're getting them. You know, and they're, they're serving and teaching and studying and discipleship. And all of a sudden she gets pregnant. And then all of a sudden she's just a mom after that. Um, and, you know, you can really feel shelved if you don't understand that being a mother and raising your children and taking care of your husband is your primary ministry. That is not something you have to do for several years until you can start doing ministry again. That is your ministry. That is your ministry. And it's the same thing. If you look at all the qualifications for elders, they first have to love their wife. They have to be one woman men and they have to take care of their wives and their children and their home. And if they aren't ministering there, they can't minister in the household of God. That is a ministry. And so, right. When you have kids, your kids, are your ministry, they grow up real quick, faster than you want. After a while, you realize, oh, no, teaching my daughter how to drive now. That's scary. Yeah, yeah, stay away from Forest Lawn. I took her over there, so if we died, we'd be close. But yeah, we're all growing up. And we're all doing ministry. And if you're a woman and you're home, just remember, your children and your husband are your primary ministry. If you can take care of them in your household and do other stuff, great. You do that. But don't feel guilty because you aren't writing studies and teaching or organizing some big, huge thing. Women have always been a huge part, a necessary part of God's program. We get to heaven, I think we're going to be very surprised that there are a lot of women that we never even knew about, who are never even mentioned, who are behind-the-scenes women, who are going to receive much greater rewards than the people who are up front, people like me. Because they were humble, they were faithful, servants so we're gonna have to come back now those are the two little gems from the text come back to the parable of the sower next week we're gonna have a special christmas message probably about the birth of christ (laughs) from galatians chapter four and then the week after that, we're going to have another special message, a New Year's message, and uh, I'm just going to talk to you a little bit about some of the things to be warned about in the year to come, some false teachings, some theological trends, some things like that that we need to be warned about, and then uh, after that, Lord willing, we'll get back and we'll get into the parable and its interpretation. It's a great parable. So with that, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for what we're able to learn from this text. I pray for each person here and pray that they would examine their own life and see whether or not they have been or are being involved in discipleship relationships, that, Father, those who are more mature would seek out others to impart their wisdom to, that, Father, we would also seek to evangelize the lost, and when they are saved, to invest in them. Father, I also pray for 
the women in this church and we just thank you for them. We thank you for their ministry and their tireless service for the body of Christ. We pray that you would continue to give them strength and help them to be good examples and father to use them in great ways to further your kingdom. Father, we thank you that you are using us. We thank you for this week as we approach uh, just the celebration of Christ's birth. We thank you for warm houses and, and presents and things like that. But most of all, we're, we're thankful for your son. Help us to remember that Christmas is about a dead and perishing world needing a savior. And Father, we thank you for all that you have given us today. May we use it for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.